Finally, we're back. Okay, episode 11. I'm very excited about this. It's been a, a while since I've been back on, but I'm very happy to be joined by... All right, this is a thing I do with everybody, trying to figure out how to say one's names. And yours is particularly interesting because your wife actually was not saying your name properly. So can you tell me how you pronounce it? It is a hotly contested issue. <laughs> um, I pronounce it Harluxh. Oh, you pronounce it Harluxh. Harluxh. Oh, so that's why everybody else does it, because that's just how you... But that's not right, is it? No, that, that's that's how I pronounce it, yeah. Why? What did you think it was? I thought we had this whole discussion about how it was like actually Harluxh. See, this happened last time too, and then I get in my head and I'm like, I don't know that I would notice that one way or another. Harluxh, Harluxh. It's the emphasis. Is it on the Har or is it on the Luxh? My mom says Harluxh. Yeah, that's different than what you just said. Yeah. If I can tell you how to pronounce your own name. Thank you for doing so. This was helpful. <laughs> um, okay. Well, anyway, uh, it is great to have you. And um, it's been a while since I've actually seen you. I'm trying to think of the last time we met. I don't Man, know what it was. it's been a long time. And a lot has changed, huh? Truly. Moving cities, having kids. So I'm glad that we get a chance to talk because I actually haven't had a a chance to talk to you in a while. So how is your, you're a family of three now, I guess four, you would you say four? I would say four. Yeah. yeah. Um, dog yeah. And baby dog and baby. Yeah. Two and a half year old dog and a nine month old baby. Nine months. How do you yeah. feel as a, a new father? It is very fun now. Fun now. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important to emphasize. There's a, a pretty thankless period where you're excited to be a parent and then it happens and you're like, none of the, like, I don't get a smile. And if I do, it's not intentional and mostly they sleep and there's no recognition or interaction. And then you kind of hit that three month mark and there's a lot more reciprocation. It starts to get fun. And now you're just in the thick of it and every day is awesome and fun and something yeah. new with food or crawling or walking or words. So it's just like more than you can even process or capture. Yeah. The first year is super exciting. Lots of change and it's, it's quick. It's every month or so there's something really new and exciting. Do like, you take time to reflect on what you would do differently in stages as in like, let me look back on the first year. Let me look back on these six months or is it kind of just happened to blink of an eye and now you're expecting again. So you're like, I can't even really think about this. I think I started doing a lot more reflecting at this age, around two years old, because it feels like there's much more of an impact of the way that I handle things with him. And I think the first year, what I have reflected on was more of how much I do in terms of Divya and I being a team and raising a kid and, how much she did and how much I did. And I think this time around, I'm, I'm just thinking about like, what are ways that I could be more helpful? What are ways that, or, you know, maybe just thinking about what, what things she did maybe behind the scenes that I didn't appreciate. And now I get it. So it was more yeah. of that kind of thing versus now it's like, okay, you know, he's having a tantrum or he wants this or how do we teach him to do blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's a different kind of reflection, but yeah, pretty consistently throughout the way. Yeah. Second kid is interesting too, because some of it you're like probably not as freaked out about and other parts you're like, let me do this better or differently. Yeah, it's it's a different kind of pressure, but I, I'm mostly excited. 
everything yeah. changes once the kid is actually out then. So <laughs> that is hundred percent true. One thing I was thinking about was that I met you when I moved to Chicago. You were already there, right? I'm pretty sure. I moved in 2013. Yeah. Okay. So you were already there and you guys were dating at the time. That's right. And I really don't know much about you before Chicago. Like I know you're from Detroit area. Like I, what was it like growing up? Like what you have a brother. Mm-hmm. You have yeah. one brother. That's it, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And he's older. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So what was, what was it like growing up? I mean, you were the younger child, just like me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the Wikipedia background would be, I was born in Italy. We moved to the States when um, I was five. So for all intents and purposes, Michigan is home. And I, you know, was raised there. Uh, I grew up in Farmington Hills, a place that I didn't realize how much I enjoyed and embraced and loved. And I still have a lot of pretty odd attachment and love and pride for where I come from for whatever reason. Um, but Michigan is, is great for multitude of reasons. I think I, I just loved everything about the Midwest before you knew that it was a Midwest thing. Yeah. And there was a big like sick community there too, which I definitely took for granted then. But as I go around to different places, I think it's like one of the bigger ones in the country and we're organized and we have like a great sense of community and we do a lot together. And that really helped, um, I don't know, set me up for success in a lot of different ways and kept me tethered to my culture and my religion. And that was really cool. Um, and then for school, you know, I was heavily involved in sports. I played football. I played basketball. I had like a good friend group. I think like the difference between me and my brother is us being first generation and him being the older brother, he got a lot more brunt of the like co-parenting responsibilities along with my, you know, mom and dad. And I got to be the beneficiary of like a second yeah. kid, just like YOLO. We out here. It's pretty great, right? It's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty great. You don't realize it in the moment. You kind of just expect it. But then after the fact, I'm like, Oh yeah, you, yeah. you, you know, stepped up to bat for me and I definitely didn't get the chance to reciprocate. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I, I very much underestimated. I mean, not even just my older sibling, but like my parents just completely brushed off the fact that their entire lives surrounded again <laughs> around me. <laughs> it's just yeah, so self centered. Um, yeah, yeah. So I I, don't, I can't remember if I knew that you were born in in India. I feel like I remember it, but in a way that like you look at a picture and you're like, yeah, I remember that happening when I was five years old. Yeah. I think most people don't. And it's cause like when you come at that young of an age, there's not a lot of like semblance of like, Oh yeah, you can yeah. tell they were from India. Um, but yeah, when I was five. So you, do you think that you, in terms of like sick culture, do you think that it was something that your parents were really, they emphasized when you were growing up or do you think it was something that you just absorbed by being in that community and it just being what everyone did as you were growing up? Yeah, I think one kind of begets the other. I think my parents were probably looking for a sense of community, being in a new country, finding people that look like them, have the same experiences as them, and then you tag along to Gurdwara or you go to an event and you see people that look like you or share experiences, and then you're just like, cool, I don't feel as othered or I feel like I belong here in a way that maybe I have to try harder to belong in other places. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those things where initially you're like, oh man, I really don't want to go on Sundays. It's boring. It's this, it's that. And then you create a sense of camaraderie of like other kids who don't want to go and they have to sit, you know, 
and just hang out and entertain themselves. And now those are some of my best friends that I've had for like 25 plus years. And I was going to ask you, so you have a lot of people that you still stay in contact with. Totally. Totally. At some point in like, was it 20, uh, 2003, maybe we started up on our team, um, for like a juniors competition and you all started of my, it? yeah, like, you know, each, it, it was like, it was a juniors competition. So there wasn't like, you know, college kids. So all these kids from different parts of the state made their own teams. And, um, that was how we created a friend group that like we have to this day. And those were my best friends. Um, so that again was a factor of being in that community, hanging out with those people and then cool things happened. And then you look back on it and you're like, Bunga was kind of just like the thing that brought us together. But the friendships and like the sense of community and the sense of belonging and holding each other accountable, all that is like what actually kept us together, man, 20 years later now. Yeah. 20 years. Yeah. That's crazy. Wild. Yeah. Has it been hard to like maintain that outside of that community now? I mean, how, what do you, in what way, like what strategies do you have of like keeping that as strong as you can, even though you're not, I there think anymore? we're the only ones that use group me still. I don't know that a lot of people use group me. <laughs> Most people have just been like, okay, we're on WhatsApp or we text. Yeah. And because we've been friends for so long, I guess group me might've been bigger at one point in time. And we are probably the only people keeping that business alive, but we have a group me chat. That's always popping. That's like, you know, and a lot of us were still in Michigan less so now, uh, but with most of them in the rear view, but like weddings, bachelor parties, all of that gives you the opportunity to get together people being in town, people going to different places. If you're in Cali, you have someone to visit. If you're in Texas, if you're in New York, Chicago, Michigan, um, and a lot of us travel for work. So we would get to see each other. And now it's just that you need to make a more concerted effort because people have kids and there's less weddings and bachelor parties. Have you had like a hard time at all with trying to maintain that culture outside of where everybody else is doing that? Like in terms of either discrimination or just like feeling, I don't know, just more stressed or tense about trying to express something in an area that other people aren't doing it. I want to make sure I understand the question. Are you saying, have I felt frustration uh, just trying to practice my religion or culturally assimilate? Yeah. Cause I, you know, I imagine Chicago is not, they don't have that strong of a community. Well, maybe there Got is, it. but you don't live there. And so Got it, it yeah. difficult to sort of maintain what you had before in a place where that doesn't exist. I think by the time I moved to Chicago, most of the, my sense of who I was to a certain degree, as it relates to my like religious identity had been formed. Like the formative years of things like that are probably a lot younger. You grow as a person, you become different versions of yourself in your twenties, definitely professionally, socially, as a partner. But I think that identity was steeped in me so long before that, that even when I went to college, I was like 10 toes down, kind of knew who I was and what my relationship to my religion was, what my relationship to my culture was. Um, and that's because I had other people that I could use as examples of what I thought good looked like. And, you know, we could, like I said earlier, keep each other accountable for what we want to be. So that was really cool. That is not something that I take for granted. Like a lot of people don't have that and yeah. it it can be very alienating, I have to imagine. So I, by the time I got here, it was all good. That's actually pretty incredible. <laughs> like saying that out loud, I'm sure that's a lot of people yeah. probably wish they have something like that. We get told just as much, you know, you meet people from other communities like we wish we had this community. We wish we had this sense of belonging. We wish we had camps growing up as kids. 
That stuff is rare. You look at a post 9-11 America and there was a lot of, you know, friction amongst different religious communities and even within them as to like, how do we represent ourselves as part of this larger diaspora? And we were able to navigate that together. Whereas someone who lives in a flyover state maybe isn't able to, if I'm only sick living in, I don't know, Arkansas, Oklahoma, not a lot of people like me there. And so we were very lucky and very fortunate. Yeah. You think, is that community kind of where you got the sense of this volunteering? I know you do a lot of volunteering. Yes. Yes, definitely. But that a little bit later in life, that was kind of solving for a more specific problem or need that we identified at that time, which we can talk about more if we want to. Uh, but yeah, definitely. Do you, do you, you, I can't remember you have your own, not company, but you have your own like nonprofit or something that you're, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We have a nonprofit called Seva for Everybody. Um, so we are a organization based out of the Metro Detroit area. Uh, what initially started as an organization that helped, uh, you know, people in the sick community find volunteering efforts and doing Seva selfless service. So it's kind of more than volunteering. When you think of the word volunteering, you think like implant, go do something, feel good about yourself and leave. Yeah. Whereas the idea of Seva is more rooted in, in you know, the religious ideas that, all people are equal. And if we can create equality by treating everyone through acts of selfless service, then we can really, you know, emancipate each other. We can free each other. We can support each other. And so that's a little bit more complex than let's go and do a thing and then leave. And we wanted to find opportunities to do that within our community. And I was explaining this to someone earlier today. It started off as like, cool, let's just like keep doing events and build a sense of belonging and togetherness. And then that turned into let's do more events because people know who we are. And then that turned into we're doing way too many events and we don't really know what those events are getting at. Right. There's this idea of a theory of change in in nonprofits, which is like, what is your mission? What is your value? What are you trying to measure success against? And so then we needed to distill it down and we kind of figured out our three pillars, which is youth mentorship, uh, revitalization of the Metro Detroit community and uh, conversations amongst the diaspora. We're like, those are three things that we really passionate about youth mentorship. We didn't have that growing up in the way that we hope to provide it to other people. Let's get it out there. Let's create an equal playing field for people like us. Uh, revitalization of Metro Detroit. So that's like food insecurity, housing insecurity. We go out in the city. People know what the perception of Detroit is and Metro Detroit area. How can we impact that more positively? And then um, conversations in diaspora is kind of a newer one, but that is how do you have conversations about weighty topics, you know, maintaining religion, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, mental health, all of these big topics, ideas that you want to talk about, but you don't have a platform for. And so that's what we've been focusing on um, for, you know, it's, it's been a very long time now that we've been doing that, but slowly chipping away at it. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that is, that is very rewarding to be able to provide that service to your community. This is all based in Detroit, right? This is yeah, most of the things that we do are in Detroit, but um, in a post-COVID world, we also have gotten used to doing a lot of, you know, um, online events, webinars, Zoom oh, sessions, nice. things like that. And that's cool because then we get to reach a bigger audience and people interact with us from places like Cali or New York or wherever. Yeah. Do you think, is that sense of community easy to foster in a virtual world? I, mean, I imagine it's difficult. I see that happening in like office culture and whatnot. Yeah, there's a thirst for it. So 
there are people that are looking for belonging and looking for community. And if you can provide that to them, then for sure, it's almost like if you live in an area where you don't need something, you're not going to go out seeking it. So maybe if we hold a, host a virtual event, we don't have as many people from Michigan, but maybe we have that many more from other states that we've never been to. We didn't even know we had people who knew about us or followed us from those states. And so that's part of the charm is making that community feel a little bit bigger or hopefully telling people like, hey, you guys can do your own version of this. We don't hold any secret recipe. We're just consistently there trying to make a very small mark in our own way. And if you want to join, join. If you want to do your own version, like happy to help. Do you think that everybody should be doing some sort of volunteering in their lives? I think everybody should be doing something outside of working and going out. And I'm like big on this. And I'm always talking about this at work because people ask me, oh, MBA, I'm applying. How do I do this? How do I do that? And that's like a gateway to have this conversation of if you need to write an exceptional recommendation letter or a letter as to your intent to going to a school, like you're going to very quickly realize that you're a pretty one-dimensional person if all you do is go to work and then come home and hang out with your friends. So be that a hobby, uh, volunteering, mentorship, singing, dancing, whatever it is, I think you need to be bigger than just any one thing that you do. So, you know, I, I chose this nonprofit route. My, my co-founders and our friends chose this nonprofit route and it like fills our cup and it's not the only thing that we do, but it is something substantial that makes us feel like we're part of something bigger. And I, I think it's really rewarding for people when they can find whatever that is to do that. And it doesn't need to be something as altruistic as, as, you know, starting an organization or whatever the case may be, it can be whatever fills your cup rap club. What, so like somebody like me, I'm probably a classic example of somebody who always talks about wanting to incorporate volunteering and then says, I just don't have time for it. Mm-hmm. What, like, what are ways that I can get my foot in the door of volunteering, especially in a place like Milwaukee here? Like, I don't know anybody here. I don't, I've never done any volunteering here before. I'm not part of any organizations or anything like that. Like what's an easy way for me to just get started? Because oftentimes that's the biggest barrier is just getting started. Yeah, I think two things that are helpful are um, set expectations for yourself and potentially lower your standards of what success looks like. People start off doing it and they're like, I'm going to change the world and I'm going to like launch this marketing campaign on social media and then I'm going to do this. Then we're going to raise millions of dollars and you, you don't need to do that. And in fact, there's a lot of great organizations already probably doing a lot of the work that you want to do. So join in, be an ally to an organization that you support, or you feel passionate about. You can literally find any type of interest that you have and search for it. And there will be ways to go support. And then it's committing yourself to like, I can probably only do this once every two months, but I'm going to do it once every two months. And I'm going to put on the calendar. And that's just something I'm going to carve out time for. And then you can engage more or less based on your availability, but you're like making a small commitment. You don't want anything you do outside of work and family that you think is liberating or fun to become a stressor, right? And it becomes a stressor because you put more weight on it than you should. So find that balance where you're like, I'm enjoying doing this thing. It's helping me. It's helping other people around me. And I feel like I can continue doing it. Even if it's, I put 4% of my time every year, but I put 4% every year for 20 years. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's true. That's kind of what I was attempting to do with this podcast is, you know, not trying to overthink it. Don't make it a whole thing. Like just yeah, totally. tell somebody, get it started, record it and then publish it. Like not... I think I think this is a spot on example of that. Yeah. And you 100%. mentioned rap club rap club is like that too. Um, I wanted to, that was another attempt at me trying to just get people together. Um, mm-hmm. and we've failed relatively recently, but it's always been a lot of fun and I want to keep doing it. And, um, 
I'm hoping that it happens again soon. I am uh, too. I'm ready for it. Yeah. Speaking of rap music, uh, you are one of the people that I talked to who is probably one of the bigger rap music fans. And I'm interested to know, I never really asked you like where, where this came from. Like, how did you get into rap music so much? Not just like listening to rap music. I mean, listening to the lyrics, getting to know who's doing the production, getting to know the artists and all that kind of stuff. Like, how do you get into that kind of an interest? Yeah. I didn't really grow up with it. Like when I think about like my high school experience, maybe that was my introduction. And that's kind of when like Kanye West graduation was out. And that's why there's such a soft spot in a certain generation of, you know, us yeah. millennials to be like, Oh yeah, we love this. This is like the best album, whatever. Cause it's very nostalgic. <laughs> I think sometime between high sometime in high school I like really fostered an interest in writing and just the arts in general and that's like we have a history of that in my family as well um and the more I listen to hip hop the more I'm like this is a really cool expression of self and this is a really cool way that people talk about things and there's layers and ways to catch up on it or like see more than what's just surface level. Um, I'm really big into movies for the same reason. I just like nerding out about it. I, I like go very deep on a very few set of things and those are two of them. Um, and then I think I, I, for whatever reason, I feel like a lot of like males in the Indian community have gravitated towards rap. I don't know what that is. I also like, um, you know, as a, as a person of color and as someone who, has been subjugated against at points in my life or has felt like othered. Like that's a big part of like what hip hop talks about, right? Feeling like yeah. you're an outsider, feeling like you've been oppressed, feeling like, you know, the systems that be are against you. And that's definitely true for our community in some aspects. So I don't want to overstate that to say that it's the same, but you read into that and you're like, wow, this is really cool. This is like, you know, power of the people kind of stuff. And then it just, I don't know. I just kept hearing more and more stuff. And I'm like, this is awesome. I like, love this. Um, it is awesome. And you, I know you're big on it too. I don't know. How did you get into it? It's kind of the same thing. I mean, I, again, I grew up, I mean, just before I started listening to rap music, I was into like 1970s classic rock. I mean, I was listening to like heavy metal. <laughs> I was learning how to play the guitar. And then yeah. I, I want to say I went to some camp where they started playing the real slim shady on the bus. And I was like, Whoa, <laughs> like this is, I didn't know that you could do this with music. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing of like when I heard like a guitar solo and I was like, wow, someone's really doing that with, you know, their fingers or, you know, from an instrument. And I, I grew up playing a lot of instruments, but then I heard the way that you can use words to actually come up with something really clever. And I thought it was super cool. And then I started listening to more music and then I met friends in high school who were also listening to rap music and, it was kind of the same thing where you just, the more you talk about it, the more you learn about it. And that's kind of what I was trying to get with, with rap club. Cause you learn a lot from the music, from the people making the music and then from your friends, you know, listening to what other people's interpretations are and whatnot. And it's just a lot of fun. Like it's a very interactive music. Um, yeah. And right. you can live with it for a long time and like interact with it in different points in your life or revisit it and just, it keeps rewarding in different ways. That's cool. It doesn't go stale. It's not like a movie you watch once and you're like, okay, I think I got it. Like you can listen to an album for decades and it changes with you and you change with it. And yeah, cool. more so the kind of rap music that we listen to. Not, yeah, that's true. <laughs> not necessarily all rap. I guess it can to some extent, but I think the way that some of these people write like Kendrick Lamar and Eminem, there's, there's albums that you can go back to and, and listen again. It's like reading a book where you're like, man, I, I have a new perspective on what you're saying and how you're saying it. Or I just didn't even make those connections when I was listening to it. 
at that yeah. time in my life. I don't know if this is the case for you, but when I started reading lyrics too, it forced a different level of concentration on it where you're listening to something and half of you is like, oh, this beat goes hard. And then the other half is, I know these lyrics, so I'm singing them. And then yeah. part of it's like, I'm processing it versus you're like, oh, I understand that this connects to the thing above it and this connects to the thing below it. And then yeah. when you get really technical, it's like everything is 16 beats and everything has these amount of syllables, which you don't need to get into that to appreciate it. But seeing yeah. it written out is a is a cool way to appreciate it. Yeah, I used to love getting the CD and then opening that front part to open up all the, the pages yeah. and the lyrics in there. And they even did that for like, I mean, every album had that, even like Hoobastank albums. But yeah, uh, when you say writing, like were you, what kind of stuff, you said there's a history of that in your family. I mean, do you write stuff? I've never read anything. Um, I, I used to enjoy writing in high school, in college. I wrote for like the paper a little bit. Okay. Um, I, I just like putting my thoughts down. Okay. Um, not, not like rap lyrics. You're just saying writing. No, no, no. Like actual uh, writing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like my, my grandfather on my mom's side was uh, a pretty famous artist in India. So I, I don't mean to say like we have a lot of writers in the family, but we have a history of like appreciation for the arts. And I think I picked up that bug a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So one thing that we've have talked about a lot is about growing up with music and the culture of rap music and try not to be the people who are like, you know, music in my day was, was better. And I, I am really having a hard time with that because I am not enjoying where rap music is going but I am curious to hear where you're at right now and how necessary you think it is to actually grow with the music or can you just stay attached to the music that you used to listen to when you were, you know, 20, 30? Yeah. It, there's a lot of gatekeeping in arts like this. And it's like, you are not part of the culture, if not this, or you don't understand it, if not this. And I forgot if it was breakfast club or somewhere, maybe Ebro said it. He's like, if you think, hip hop is always trash after the point that you listen to it. That just means that you like music growing up and you don't like it now. And that's okay. But don't say that hip hop is trash. And I think that's true. Like hip hop is the culture and the culture is hip hop. And sometimes if you are sitting on the outside of what the main culture is, that's okay. That just means you're growing and some parts of the culture you'll vibe with and other parts you won't. And I fully expect that like, I'm going to be on the outside looking in pretty pretty soon and maybe some of the people that i'm like oh this is my person and then someone gen z says these are their people and i'm like i don't even recognize those names then it's up to me whether i want to do the homework or not yeah but i i I just i don't think that hip-hop is going in a bad place i just think hip-hop is going in a place that we're not going anymore you think there's still the same number of people who are paying attention to the lyricism 150 percent. i think there's more i think there's infinitely more I think there's infinitely more great artists. It's just we gravitate towards what, to what we do, and it's harder as you get older to introduce yourself to new things because you have kids, because you have family, because your job is busy. And like, you know, you, you think about times when you discovered artists, and it's probably pretty young, and when you had a lot more time uh, to just sit there with it. Yeah, that's there's not, a lot more volume too now. Like, I mean, so much volume. So many more people have the ability to just put out music that it's yeah, it's hard to just kind of filter through everything. Yeah, I need a I need a Gen Z plug to just put me on to like good stuff so that I don't need to do the heavy lifting. Yeah, that's well, that's why we have kids, right? I mean, that's, yeah, whatever <laughs> Gen that will be. That's... Tell them to keep us updated. Um, one thing I never asked you either is about we always talk about rap music. We never talk about like Punjabi music. Do you do you listen to a lot of Punjabi music? 
I do. Cause, yeah. Cause I listen to a lot too, just because I was on the, the Bangra team and I have friends who show me a lot of music too, but we've like never talked about that part of music. Is that something that you, is it like almost equal to rap music or is it just kind of like background stuff? Uh, I don't listen to it with the same fervor that I do hip hop music. Uh, I also, there's a little bit of a language barrier because the Punjabi that they speak in a lot of Bhangra songs, or not even Bhangra songs, but Punjabi songs in general mm-hmm. is not necessarily like the same speaking Punjabi that everybody has. So sometimes you're like, okay, I'm understanding everything, but there's like two or three words that you have to go back to your parents and be like, what does this word mean? They're like, Oh, I don't even know. Or I have to really figure that out. Really? It's a little bit more um, proactive that you have to be, but yeah, I definitely listen to Bhangra music, to Punjabi music in general and to Indian music of different types in general. Um, Yeah, for sure. I it's, I mean, I mean, I can't understand essentially any of it but it's kind of the same as listening to any of the Latin music. Like I, I, I know more Spanish than I do Hindi or Punjabi, but yeah. still like the stuff that they're talking about in those songs is like all, it's a hundred percent slang the entire yeah. song. And I don't really understand a lot of it, but you don't yeah. need to understand it to enjoy it. And there's been Latin music has exploded worldwide. People are listening oh my God, to it, yeah. even though they yeah. don't understand it. And I was wondering if you thought that, Punjabi music, or I guess, yes, I don't know to differentiate Punjabi music and Bangladesh music, but I guess Punjabi music is having kind of an entry into the world stage with like Diljit Dosanjh and that kind of stuff. Do you think that, is that going to become a bigger thing where people will start listening to it, even though they don't understand it? Or is that, do you think it's Latin music is closer to American culture, but just geographically and culturally, and that's why it happened? No, I, I think Punjabi music has every possibility of being a worldwide thing. And I think it's already kind of getting there, like you mentioned with the Coachella performances and stuff. I mean, the the beats present themselves as being very like hip hop, modern up, like hype beats. That part is cool. Um, I feel like Punjabi culture is very at the forefront um, of, you know, party scene and going out scene and just, all that. So that part is cool. And then there's just more people getting introduced to it, whether that's through the college Bhangra circuit or whatever the case is. So there's more advocates on behalf of it, which is also really cool. Um, and there's more people that want to hear it. There's more people that'll make good stuff. Yeah. I hope it does. Cause it's a lot of fun. Um, that's why I listen to it. And, um, so you and Sneha were both on Bhangra teams then, huh? Yeah, but I was like, I had retired before I even got to college. <laughs> By that time, I was like so saturated that like, I don't even think I knew a single person on Maryland's Bungar team yeah. versus Sneha, I think, started doing more and more as she got into college. And then she's like professional dancer, right? So she's right, on like yeah. a, a dance troupe and she's next level. I, I'm old uncle at Bhangra parties whose knees hurt and who you can tell used to dance at some point in his life, but hasn't in a very <laughs> long time. She probably listened to, to Punjabi music too, then, right? She listens and has way better taste in all Indian music and is the one that puts me onto most of my stuff, or my friend group puts me onto a lot of stuff. Yeah. You guys, how long have you guys been married now? It's been. It's going to be five years five Labor Day this year. Day. Yeah. We're coming up on Very like cool. almost a little more than a month will be five years. Yeah. yeah. 10 years together. Yeah, it's like almost the exact same story that we have it's been like 10 years and five years married yeah yeah um 
how do you well, one thing i was i was thinking about this while i was thinking about this episode was i was trying to figure out like what things you know should i ask him about and talk about and obviously kids is an easy one because i just had one you just had one i'm gonna have another one but i was kind of thinking back to my other episodes and one thing i never really talk about is like being married i think a lot of people talk about they talk with their married friends about kids and how it's affecting them and their life. But I don't, maybe you have a different experience, but I don't feel like we talk about what it's like to be married pre-kid, what it's like to be married after having a kid. Do you, have you guys talked like purposely about like, you know, Hey, this has changed and this has changed and what sort of strategies can we use to maintain our relationship, you know, not just as parents, but as like husband, wife. hundred percent. I would love to hear your thoughts on this too. But for us, it was definitely as with probably every couple ever, you have a kid and it like brings to the forefront, every potential grievance in a relationship that even is very strong. It just like brings out the frustration, brings out different things. Cause you're both stressed. You both have a lot going on. You're both trying to figure out this new way of, of, you know, interacting with each other. Whereas before it was like, we fully invest our time in each other. And I think we do a great job of just like talking things out and like over communicating and just checking in all the time. And that was learned. That wasn't, that didn't come naturally or intuitively. I think we both kind of figured out how to do that. And like, I've, you know, I've spoken to my therapist about like, Hey, how would, you approach this, how, like, would you do this related to a bunch of different things? And that's one of them. And she brought up a really good point of like, you know, she said, I have clients that were exceptional students in high school and then they went to college and they weren't getting good grades, but they didn't know what to do. And I asked them, well, did you go talk to the teacher? Did you find a tutor? Did you get prep courses? Did you do extra assignments? And this list of like, diagnosing like did you try doing these things and for relationships sometimes you don't even do that you're like something is wrong and then you just don't do anything to address it and yeah. i think we're very good at going through the checklist of like well what was the issue how do we resolve this how does this relate to something else and like really going down that that list almost like i don't know maybe it's like the business mindset in us it's like what's the issue what's the resolution how do we get there but it has made us so much stronger it's just you have to work a lot harder at it that's been my experience. What did, what did, what about you guys? Yeah, I, it's, it has been, I don't want to say it's been difficult because it's, it's, I mean, it's been fine. I think in my head, it's been a lot different, but everybody tells you while you're, you know, at these parties and stuff, when your wife is pregnant, they're like, Oh, you know, make sure you guys make time for yourselves, make time for yourselves, make time for yourselves. And it's hard to see the other side when you're like, look, we've been together for like seven years. Like we spend every day together. We talk every single day about everything all the time. And then second, it's not the kid. It's like six months go by. And you're like, man, have we like talked like at all? Like, you know, it's like, yeah, we haven't done much of anything together. Like we are together all the time, but all we're doing is focusing on this kid and trying to make sure we're not messing anything up. And you, you, it's not like you grow apart, but you're definitely not growing it it didn't, I guess it doesn't feel like you're always growing stronger together as husband and wife. To me, for some reason, I, I compartmentalized this relationship that I had with Divya and there's kind of a new role of like father that's separate from husband. And maybe that's 
maybe that's wrong and maybe that's why it made it more complicated. It's and it shouldn't necessarily have to feel like you're adopting a new separate role, but you just have new responsibilities. And I think in my head, I had a harder time just sort of adjusting to the the concept of like, we need to make a concerted effort of maintaining our relationship, however that is. And maybe it's over communicating. Maybe it's just taking time to hang out, you know, one-on-one, not thinking about our over, you know, whatever. But I think it's an underemphasized concept in being married that like, you know, you don't forget about what you guys had prior to this because you're going to need it not only throughout raising a kid, but even after, like once they get older, you're going to have to maintain something because each step of the way is going to be very different. So it's just been really interesting. For sure. And definitely, definitely can relate to that. And it's like you find time to do the dishes. You find time to clean the baby's stuff up. You find time to like change their sheets to clean the house. But like in that same way, even if it has to become a task of like, we have to find time to like go out to lunch together, go out to dinner together. Like that's important. I love this thing that we started doing. Where we're like, well, if we can't do dinners every week, maybe every other week we like alternate between a lunch out and a dinner out. So one week we'll go to lunch somewhere. We'll like set aside an hour of our time and just like go hang out and do that in the middle of the day. And then maybe the next week we'll do dinner out or if not dinner, we'll order dinner in and just hang out. But like it, it's a thing you have to actively do. Otherwise you just float kind of in parallel to each other as parents. And that's like the one point of relation you have to each other, as opposed to like, no, this is like my person and I got to maintain that at all costs. Yeah. Cause I, I felt, I mean, throughout the first year and even now, but I'm just saying like, I was thinking about this more in the first year, I felt really good about us as parents. I was like, man, we are, we're doing a good job. <laughs> and that's yeah. mainly because we had a lot of help and a lot of guidance, but yeah, I, I, I was very comfortable with this role. I was like, you know, we are, we're doing as well as I expected us to do, but yeah. I did not expect to feel like we're doing good at that, but I didn't realize that, you know, I also the expense had to, of what, yeah, I was like, man, I, we had to actually also do that stuff too. And then I felt like a task. And I think the more I thought about it and we talked about it, I was like, yeah, it's okay. If it's a task, we just need to do it. And once you do it, it's fun, but you have to actually make it happen. Yeah. Michelle Obama has this like, um, story that she's been telling a, a little bit on her press tours for her like book and, you know, her shows and all of that stuff. And she's like, you know, I always tell people who are young couples, you have kids and then you suddenly realize that everything that your spouse does annoys you. And then it's not until you get out the other end when they go off to college that you're like, hey, I know this person. I love this person. This person's awesome. And it's because if you're frustrated by something, you're going to look at the kid and be like, this kid is so cute. Why would I get mad at this kid? Why don't I get mad at this other person? Or why don't I like take it out in this different way? And then once they go out to college, you kind of figure out like, oh yeah, this is my person again. And she emphasized the idea of like trying to do that as it's happening and be aware of the fact that sometimes times can get tough, but you know, still find time for each other. Do you, a slight transition, but do you think that as you have grown into this role of being a dad, that your relationship with your parents has changed? Probably. Yeah. I haven't really thought about it much because you're so in it and I, it's cool to see your parents become grandparents in different ways and like the relationship that your kid has with them and you want to protect that at all costs. Cause that part is awesome. Yeah. It's like fun to see a renewed sense of energy in them. I think 
the way that like I have my relationship with my parents as like their son is probably mostly the same. They probably are like, we wish we could see Millen more. We wish he could like be around more. Um, but I think their relationship with Millen is something that I've really tried to cultivate and make sure is like really strong. Like I want that to be a thing and I want him to like get excited when either sets of his grandparents comes over or goes anywhere. Even if like, that means like me and my parents are beefing at the moment. Like you put that aside and you're still like, this is your thing. You should be excited to go to, you know, Dadu Dadi's house. And that's like a fun thing for you. And that, that part's been cool. Are there things that you've realized about how your parents parented you as you are trying to raise your kid? Like, Hmm, I never really thought about this, but now that I had to do it, I'm thinking about like, you know, what I had when I was growing up and if I liked uh, this or didn't like this. Abundance of privilege is what <laughs> Millen has. Like just a abundance of privilege in spades in every capacity that I look around and I'm like, I hope you don't suck. Um, and my parents' parenting strategy was like, let's just make sure they're in school. They're doing well in school. We have a job. We're paying the bills. We can afford to have food on the table, roof overhead. As a lot of immigrant stories, not all immigrant stories are, but that was definitely ours. Like, you know, it wasn't like we were maybe middle class, right? Just like maybe right on the fringe of that. Um, and so they just didn't have access to all the resources that we do. They didn't have the time for it. They didn't have the knowledge of it. They had a language barrier. They had a cultural barrier, all of this stuff. Um it was just hard for them and we're the benefactors of it. And I was talking to one of my buddies who I grew up with and he's like, it's amazing that, you know, most Indians that come to this country need one generation and then they're set for success. Like not all, but like most, like your parents come, they grind it out. Sometimes they also reach that American dream pinnacle of success, but if not them, definitely the next generation that success doesn't necessarily mean doctor, lawyer, whatever. It, It can just mean like that next kid really knows what they want to do and they're out there trying to get it and they're taking advantage of all the resources around them. And I hope that for Millen, but that's, yeah, that must've been hard for my parents. I, I think I've talked about this many times on my podcast and I don't, I don't care if I keep doing it, but I know because I, I heard it in one of them and I was like, Oh, this is an interesting topic. So I'm glad we get to revisit it <laughs> it's, in episode it, 11. It's something that I, I, mean, I think about all the time because it's this, I have the same story. You know, my parents came with very little and, they, they worked very hard to, to make it here. And I like to think of myself as somebody who, you know, benefited a lot from their hard work and is, is sort of set up for success. And I was wondering, and I'm still wondering, how do I create an environment for my kids where they have what they want, but they still develop the drive to get what they need in the future and, you know, still be able to like spoil them or, you know, give them the benefits of my parents and my grandparents and my hard work, but, you know, make sure that they're like normal, hardworking people. Like, I don't know how to purposely create that environment. Yeah. Yeah. I don't either. I don't know. I used to say my way of like equalizing that is I want my kid to, or kids to do whatever they want, but I want them to be the best version of it. And I think potentially that's like, a full freedom where real freedom is they don't need to have the pressure of needing to be the best at something. Right. Like I think about so many kids who do well in school that like are 
American white kids. They go to these small liberal art schools and it's because they have the benefit of like, I want a smaller experience and I just want a good classroom environment. And I know that things will turn out all right for me because I have access to good opportunities and I have a good network. Like that's real freedom versus a lot of times the immigrant experiences. I need to go to a top school. I need to be a top performer there. And like, I will get there and I'm benefiting from all of this, but like I have to really grind and the pressure is on me and everybody's watching me. So I don't know what the balance of that is, but I want whatever it is to be what my kid has of like, you know, I, I just really want you to commit to something, but I don't want you to feel like it defines you in the same way that maybe it did for prior generations. Are there, do you have any specifics about uh, what, I mean, is this something that you need to, you have to create it as time goes on? Like, do, are you going to say like, okay, Millen, you, you got to have a job at some point. You have to, you know, allowance, no allowance. Like how, how do you instill those values in them though? Just passively or is it going to be something that you do on purpose? I will ask you when you get there right before I get there <laughs> and then I'll just do that. I, I, mean, I don't I know, man. It, it's, it's really big questions that I haven't stopped to consider fully. Or if I gave answers in earnest, it would be potentially very ideologically driven. Um, where you get there and you're like, oh, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. And I got to really pivot from what I thought it was. Um, I want them to be connected to Seva in some capacity, like throughout their lives. Um, and I want them to be well-rounded and balanced. And that's like, you know, but that's pretty big and broad and who knows how that's going to manifest. Yeah. Yeah. I'm working on it. I guess I could just ask my parents how they did it. Yeah. But, and it's like each generation doesn't always have the answers that the next one is looking for. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Are there any, like, are there any family values you think you, you had growing up that you specifically want to pass on to Melon or your, or or other kids, if you have any, my, my parents are very open-minded, which was really cool. Like my mom knows like, a lot about a lot of religions and that part is really cool and just like cultures and different ways of thinking and she was very open liberal minded woman my dad was always very just kind assumed the best in people and gave the best and was a very humble dude is a very humble dude i think those both of those two things would be awesome if i could continue to pass down and if i absorb those in any capacity your your brother has like at least one kid too right Yep. Yeah. Did, did, did being around him and his kids like change any of your perspective on being a parent? Um, it just, it showed me how fun it's going to be. And I was very excited for that. And now I'm like approaching it and I just see how happy they are and how much fun they have. And it's just beautiful. It's like, you know, you FaceTime them, they're having dinner around a family table. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's like, happy everybody's fully present a lot of this is like you know again privilege to be able to do that but also you're taking that privilege and you're using in a good way to create a good family environment to create certain norms we all sit around the table we hang out no phones no ipads none of that and if we have an ipad we're facetiming other family to feel close and stay close to them so that's really cool that they do that and i hope to continue to emulate that too yeah. Yeah. I think taking, taking advantage of the opportunity is the big thing there. Like you can have the opportunity, but if you don't, if you don't use it in the right way or, or appreciate it for what it is and you don't, you're not actually taking advantage of it. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. What about you? Did you, you feel like that? Like things you picked up from either your parents or your siblings? Cause I feel like 
as you get older, things that you thought were set in stone about like, this is who I am and this is how I am. And this is how I'm different from your parents or my, your like siblings. It like gets flipped on its head and you're like, yeah. Oh, I'm actually not what I thought I was. Yeah. That I think it started when I, when we got married because as a younger sibling who took full advantage of the privileges that were given to me by my, my parents and my older sister, once I became a husband, it was like, well, okay, you need to, you need to have your own responsibilities and, make decisions for yourself and, you know, other people are going to be leaning on you. And now that I have a, a kid, it's, it's even much more in my face. So this whole process of just accepting responsibilities and trying to carve out my own place rather than sort of coasting along has been a really difficult transition. And it's been a lot of fun because it's something that you can actually appreciate as it's happening because it's, it's difficult, you know, you have to face yourself and who you were and who you want to become. And it all sort of changes really quickly where it's like, okay, you always wanted this certain thing, but now there's a different set of barriers that you have to go across. And, and it's, it's fun because you get to dig inside yourself. Like you don't need anybody else's help to change those things Like you just use the people around you to show you what you need to do. And then it's up to you to make those changes. So it has been hard, but it's actually been a lot of fun and I'm a very reflective person. So I, I think about it a lot. Um, How do you manage that with the, like just the unfair expectations and system that is like being a physician and trying to get through the finish line? Because like I benefit from, Hey, if I'm out from like four 30 to 7 PM, like I'm going to do that. And my, work will understand or they'll get over it and but i can get back online later and finish up work and catch up and i'm still like giving my all but i can be more flexible versus you might want to be like i want to be a parent every day and i want to be a present husband but i'm not going to be any of those for the next three weeks yeah and that that all comes down to your support system and divya is the short answer is my wife i mean that's that's how uh she's just been incredible throughout this whole thing i mean residency being pregnant and then having a kid at home. And obviously uh, both of our families have been very supportive and I mean, career wise is a different conversation, but just kind of getting through it all has just been, I'm again, very lucky that other people pick up a lot of slack around me and maybe slack is the wrong word. They they're very supportive. They want to, um, and not everybody has that. So another thing that I, I try not to take for granted, but career wise, it's a different story. You know, it's, I've had long conversations with other physicians about this goal oriented field where you spend years and years of your life without ever pausing to take a look back at you know how hard you worked and what you've accomplished. And, you know, there's no good time to have a kid. You want to go through residency and then you want to go to fellowship and you want to get a job and you're potentially moving each one of these, uh, each step of the way. And it's, it's not fun, but it's almost over, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Davia, the real MVP. That's right. Are you, so you're, what are you working on right now? Where do you work? I work at KPMG. I'm, okay. uh, I'm a consultant. Are you still working on becoming a partner somewhere? Is that the eventual goal? Yeah. I mean, I guess to the degree that you can control these kinds of things, right. It's like very yeah. competitive. It's, it's like asking someone in med school, do you still want to be a dermatologist? It's like, I, I don't know. Like <laughs> yeah, I, I, let me. I only control. Yeah. So much of that. 
That's um, true. I am very happy in consulting. I'm very happy where I am, and I'm trying to be the best version of myself. And if that manifests in getting more opportunities and different leadership capacities, awesome. Um, yeah. But having a kid, right? Like, there was a point in my career, most of my career, I think, at this firm where I'm like, cool, just visiting this level, stopping by, saying hi, on to the next. And now I'm like, I'm, I'm good. Like, <laughs> the expectations you had of me, I would definitely lower them because this is no longer how I measure success. And if it takes yeah. me a little bit longer, I don't get to the next thing. Like, I'm trying to see the forest from the trees. Yeah. Do you, are you still looking to move to New York at some point? That dream has sailed. We have <laughs> a house. We have a kid. <laughs> we got a dog. I am not making that kind of money. Um, no, but I do visit. I try to visit pretty frequently and it's still a city that very much energizes and makes me happy. And we're going again in a couple of weeks. So that is a much cheaper option. Specifically uh, New York. Specifically New York. There's yes. no other city that you get that feeling. I love Michigan. Um, and I love where I'm from in Michigan, like Farmington area, but that's, it. it's not the same. That's more like a nostalgic and like, you know, my perfect, I close my eyes and I see the perfect suburbia that you see in TV shows and movies. And that's what I see versus New York is just the epicenter of culture. But as we talked about, I am no longer the epicenter of culture. So why would I want to be there? That's right. Do you want to go back to Michigan eventually or? I don't know. We're very happy where we are and okay. we're very social people and we have a great group of friends here yeah. um never say never but right now like nowhere in our near future is that a plan i was another thing that i was thinking about when i was trying to plan for this was you know what are some interesting hot takes that you have like you mentioned <laughs> and uh something that actually has been i wouldn't say troubling me but something that i have thought about a lot that i never oh thought about before is just like american culture in general and I don't, I never really knew what that meant growing up because I didn't have to, you know, I really wasn't discriminated against. My parents provided me with all the opportunities I needed. And now in the last, you know, eight years or so as one, I've become an adult and two, it's just become much more prevalent uh, in media and, you know, for whatever reason. And I started to realize that I am pretty much surrounded by like an echo chamber or a bubble or whatever, you know, you want to say the things that you read, the friends that you hang out with. And it's not always on purpose, but it definitely happens. And this whole other side of, I don't even know what to call it, but of America that, and it's not one side, it's many sides, but just different opinions about what it means to be American have been really conflicting to me. And I think I've always used like my parents as a concept of like America, you know, like you come to this country, nobody is from here except the natives, but you know, you come to this country wanting to do something, you get it done. And then you provide for those who come after you and watching all of America sort of really divide itself has been kind of like weirdly painful to me. And I don't know what your experience with this has been and how you, go about at this small level, you know, we were talking about volunteering and just doing whatever you can in your community. Like I don't do anything about this, but I think about it a lot. And I, it, it's, it's painful to see kind of what's happening and feel like the concept of being American is so different to some people that it's not like we can both be American, but they're both different. It's like, I'm American and what you are is just not, and I don't accept that. And yeah. I don't, I don't know what to do about that. 
Yeah. That's a big, big question topic. Not even, yeah, I, I'm not even sure if I asked a question, but. No, but you brought up a lot of good points. And there was always this growing up idea of American exceptionalism. And I, I think worldwide that, you know, smoke and mirrors is, is, you know, exposed and that isn't yeah. really a thing that we see anymore that the world sees anymore. And you would think that being American is a definition of I I'm an America and I'm an American citizen. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I think, I think the ways that you can make meaningful change, unfortunately are a lot of them are system oriented, right? Like, are you represented in your local elections? Are your opinions represented? Do you, does your community have enough financial backing and power and clout to be able to influence politicians to stand on your behalf, to side on issues that you want? And this is, it feels like archaic to be like, you know, you need to get out there and vote and you need to do these things. But in the systems that be right now, that is one powerful way that you can make sure that you know, things work in your favor, but all those systems are so broken. Um, and you're totally right. We live in, in, we live in such an echo chamber, even living in like, like Chicago is a big city, you know, even relative to most of America, Milwaukee is a, a, a city, you know, yeah. capital C city. So, and then you, your profession surrounds you around people that are potentially like-minded. And I don't know how to break out of that echo chamber, but I, I don't know. I always find this idea of like, you know, anti-woke culture, just fascinating because it seems like it, Same, they, they see intellectualism as a threat to their way of being or thinking. And I always grew up thinking like, wouldn't I want the smartest people to represent the policies and the decisions that are made in this country? But woke culture is now like when we thought what woke was, it means like, you know, be aware, be awake to certain issues that are happening. Just be knowledgeable, be in the know. And suddenly anti-woke culture is just like, you know, completely yeah. on the opposite to that. And I, that, that part fascinates me is like, you just want to not be intellectually aware or intellectualism threatens you because potentially you have a different background. I, I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, it almost feels like there is no culture anymore. There's only anti X. Like everybody is just anti something. It's yeah. Like, are you just against on one side or the other? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't, and I think that's why I'm so troubled by where I am. I've never been like a political person. I never really had a strong stance on a lot of things, but it almost feels like you need to be on a side and everybody else around me seems like they're on a side. And I'm just like, I don't like, I, <laughs> so I thought about this a while ago and I like asked Sneha, I was like, do you think most people are good people? And she looked at me like I was crazy. She's like, yes, definitely. I don't know. And, and <laughs> I was like, oh, interesting. Like, I wasn't as sure. But when you say it, I'm like, yeah, most people are probably good people. But you don't get to meet all people. Yeah. And then an entire group of people makes, you know, just decisions or assumptions on other groups of people. And that's how we get into trouble. So I have a hard time reconciling that too is like if i bumped into a person and i was wearing a bug a turban and i talked to them i think more often than not like it's all good but i think the idea of me potentially makes those same people a lot more uncomfortable and then you know the 24-hour news cycle perpetuates bad things yeah it's it's so interesting because i 
it's sad to me that when I see somebody talking about being a patriot or an American or even just waving an American flag, I don't feel like we have the same concept of yeah. being American. And that uh, that's just, that has made me really sad. Like I see an American flag and I feel like that is, that is the other side. And I never felt like that until the last couple of years. Yeah. Yes. I guess if, if we're looking for a hot take, I, I think just like nationalism and like just pride for a country or, you know, patriots always made me a little bit uncomfortable, no matter yeah. what the country is. I, I don't know how you can just like, it's a, it feels like a weird trait and it feels like it's underlining some, like, I want, I don't want to lose something that was even yeah. if it, you know, it brings about progress of a certain kind. Yeah. And, and I, then you see that in India with like yeah, Hindu, Hindu extremism and it's like bad. And then those are the same people that have powers in America so that they can kind of make their voices heard. Like that's a group that organizes really well and is really baked into society. And they actually sit pretty far on the right too, because they kind of have the same ideas of like, we are good. Everybody else is bad or everybody else is this. It's just like very polarizing. And yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't nationalism know. always freaks me out. I don't think I definitely don't know enough about history and politics to like, has it always been this way or has it been like this in the past? And I'm just, you know, we're living through a cycle of this or is this yeah. something new? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. We're stuck in the matrix. Cause it feels like it's really, there's a lot of boiling water right now and it's, a, it's going to boil over at some point, but, or maybe I'm just overreacting, but I don't know. It's just, it's kind of scary. Not like in an actual day to day, like I'm scared, but thinking about it is just kind of like, man, I don't really like where this is going. And for the first time I, I grew up thinking like, Oh yeah, America is number one, you know, like it's the best country in the entire world. And now I'm like, I, I actually don't think so. <laughs> like, no, in fact, not it's, at not, all. it's not, <laughs> it's not, it's yeah, categorically not. I, a couple of weeks ago, I had to start following like a happy, cute things, Instagram account, just cause there was so much doom and gloom. And this is just like people doing nice things or cats and dogs being cute. And I just need that serotonin hit. Cause I'm like, things are bad and I, I don't need all the bad all the time. Yeah. And it's easy. And what I've always done is sort of just ignored it and been like, yeah, you know, doesn't directly affect me or I don't, somebody's working on it. And I think that that's probably, that's not the right thing to do. I think I've probably taken up enough of your time here. Uh, this is great. <laughs> We could keep going, but I, anyway, I, it's a lot of stuff to talk about and I really uh, appreciate you coming on and spending time with me. I'll be back for episodes 12 and 13 next week. <laughs> you mean the two or three months from now? <laughs> yeah, That's how long whenever. it takes me. We find time. No, this was awesome, man. Thank you for yeah. doing it. Hopefully yeah. I didn't uh, ramble. Nope. I, I definitely did more of that and I will see you at the next rap club. I will be there. Let's pick an album, get it on the books. All right.